so that's why when I talk about the def defining the term, right? I talked about substances and processes because it's not just alcohol or opiates or street drugs. There's things like gambling, social media, other types of screen addictions. It's all of that. Our ever-changing world calls upon the most courageous, resilient, and relentless of us to face its most extraordinary challenges. To help you embark on this journey, we present the Impactful Coaching Podcast, your oasis for inspiration and a beacon to spark the fires of greatness within you. I'm Joseph. I will be your ally in this journey to empower your potential. Join us each week as we dive deep into the heart of ambition, drive, and success to unravel compelling stories of daring leaders who dreamed, struggled, and achieved victory. Our journey begins now. How is everybody doing? This is the Impactful Coaching Podcast. My name is Joseph, and if this is your first time joining us today, I want you to know I thank you for taking your time to listen to us while you are doing any number of things. Maybe you're doing the dishes. Maybe you're on the road. Maybe you're sitting perfectly still in a room with your speaker on and are just uh, meditating. Uh, please let me know if you're if you're doing something like that. I would love to know what kind of uh, positive effect it has on your day-to-day uh, -day lived experience. Um, so all of that little humor off the top, but we are entering territory today that is some of the more serious discussions that we've had on the podcast. And so I just want everyone to be aware of that going in. Today is a discussion about addiction, and I'm here with Lori Bolin. Lori, thank you for being on the program. It was a... Uh, it, I really don't know what word I really want to go for, but it just seemed like such a great opportunity to be able to discuss this. And, you know, at the end of today, for me to know that I've at least done some part in getting the message out there and maybe helping someone along in their own issues. So thank you for being here. How are you doing today? Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Joseph, for having me. I'm, I'm honored to be here and to, to have this, as you said, really serious um, conversation. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm doing great and looking forward to our to our talk. Me too. So for the first act of this, anybody who's ever listened to a podcast, you know what to expect. We are going to have to start off by just telling the audience, what do you do these days? What are you up to? Okay, great. Thanks. Um, so I am what's called a family recovery coach. And so what that means is that I come alongside, work with families who love someone with an addiction. And that can look like any number of things. There's um, educational component where, you know, we really talk about what is addiction? What's the science? What's the most recent research showing? The impact of the family is huge. Recent research has shown us that. We help families um, develop mindfulness practices to uh, maintain their own peace and calm in the midst of what is often a very chaotic situation. I also help them learn new communication tools and techniques that they can use uh, with their person that, that has addiction and also their ethical in all relationships. And I'm also the founder of the nonprofit organization Building Bridges to Recovery um, which supports all those. One th there's a lot of things that we want to be clear about. One thing that I want to make sure that we are uh, aware of crystal clear going forward is that your your work is primarily directed towards the families and the, and the support network of someone undergoing a serious addiction problem. You don't necessarily work with the person who's uh, suffering from the addiction directly. Do I understand that correctly? 
Uh, yes, that is that is correct. That's okay. my area of expertise. I can help and I have helped individuals through their addiction process, but my real true expertise and I believe calling is with the families. So before we talk about addiction in full, another thing that I want to make sure that we're clear on, um, because like when we dive into the subject about anxiety, when we dial into the subject about mindset, I ask for a definition, but I frame it in a specific way because the definitions have, I wouldn't say they've undergone a full fundamental reevaluation, but if I, if you ask somebody what anxiety means in 2015 versus what it means in 2023, you're going to get two different answers. Mm -hmm. So what is addiction as we understand it in 2023? Oh, such a good question. So addiction, um, whether you look at the the CDC um, definition or the APA, which is American Psychiatric Association, um, SAMHSA, NIDA, they all have the same basic um, components in their definition problematic use of a substance or um, behavior that leads to significant impairment, health problems, inability to meet responsibilities um, in the day-to-day. So continued use in one of those areas, again, whether it's a substance or a process, despite um, harmful or negative consequences. And what I think is especially true about this topic, although I mean, and I'm just relating this to anxiety because I think in terms of all of the conversations I've had so far, anxiety is probably the mm-hmm. closest one. But there were a lot of issues that occurred between 2015 to 2023 that would increase anxiety, uh, reformat it in, in new ways. Obviously, COVID comes to mind, but I think also the inundation of news not just happening locally or, or, or nationally but globally there mm-hmm. if anything is going on in the world that is causing distress we know about it and and that has a compounding impact on our day-to-day lives and, and keep in mind too is that we, we 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 did inside baseball everybody we did go through all the questions are going to be we wanted to make sure we were totally informed but it, it's hard to totally avoid spontaneous questions from coming up as well so this is one of those would you say there have been some significant milestones in what people have become addicted to? I would imagine stuff like social media, uh, the prevalence of the internet, mm-hmm. access to certain content that we don't need to start characterizing. I think we know what we're talking about. So I think that the the landscape of what people are becoming addicted to has changed, but I'd like to hear from your point of view. Yeah, absolutely. You're, at, you're spot on, um, especially with the... Um, the isolation that we experienced from COVID um, drove people more to these screens, right? So we're seeing a lot more, especially in our young people, um, teenagers, early 20s, that that age range, a lot of screen addictions, whether it's um, you know, a lot of a lot of social media, um, gaming. And so that's why when I talk about the def- defining the term, right? I talked about substances and processes because it's not just alcohol or opiates or street drugs. Mm-hmm. There's things like gambling, social media, other types of screen addictions. It's all of that. So um, yes, we have seen um, a shift in that area. Again, a lot of it related to that, just that isolation that we all went through, 
you know, we have, we also have seen an increase in what people traditionally think of when they think of addiction, alcohol, drugs, et cetera, because again, related to that isolation, because we were just alone, right? And not a lot of human contact. And um, certainly, thank goodness for the internet, because we can do things like Zoom and have some contact, but there is that face-to-face that we just as human beings need and that we just um, didn't have people craved and um, led to a lot of, as I'm sure you've heard from your other guests, some um, mental health struggles and issues that a lot of people self-medicate with substances Mm -hmm. or processes. Mm -hmm. So it's a big landscape, Joseph, with, uh, Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's no one, like, this is an addiction, you know, it's, Mm -hmm. it is a continuum. Mm -hmm. Well, what I noticed about the overlap between uh, substances and, and processes is that they all tie into chemical reactions in one way or another. The habitual looking at our phones or looking at screens, um, it all ties into getting a, a, a dopamine release. And I, I've even observed, and this is coming from someone who's, I mean, I have dialogues for a living. And w- because I'm in a lot of social settings, what I notice is addictive tendencies in the way that even people treat one another. It's, it's easy to, to tease and to make fun and to belittle somebody because you get an immediate release, but it damages the relationship in the long term. So I think a lot of these, these processes are, are so ingrained in our uh, societal structure that a, a lot of the stuff that is harming one another, people don't even realize. And I, I don't know how far uh, you, you want to expound on that. It's an observation that I've made, but I do you feel that there is certain and in certain embedding in a, a chasing of chemical reactions, even in our social setting. Yeah, absolutely. There is that that um, scientific component to addiction, and you hit it spot on. It's that dopamine release, right? That's that that feel good chemical that our that our brains release that give us that that warm, fuzzy feeling inside, you know, same as we can get that from exercise, you know, mm-hmm. and we can get that from substances and we can get that from behaviors. And um, culturally, there are things that are more um, acceptable. I'm giving you air quotes here, acceptable, mm-hmm. right? So like to use your example, you know, someone, you know, being a little, uh, what's the word? I would use the word snarky, you know, like, and they, and they might call it teasing, and it might even be that's teasing, right? But it is that release, that dopamine release, that chemical reaction. Um, mm-hmm. And yet, you know, culturally, we might say, oh, they're just kidding. So there's that component to the issue as well. Just the way our culture uh, characterizes, I almost said judges, characterizes mm-hmm. certain substances or behaviors. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also wanted to get um, clear up the terms that you use when you're speaking uh, or characterizing the people in particular. So that's on deck. We'll, we'll get to that. But I had two other ob- observations that I wanted to share. The first is that I do my best to avoid uh, politics in this. And so I'm not indicting or condoning one party or another in this. But the issue specifically of universal basic income came up as a matter of what is this going to do to people? People aren't going to be motivated. 
And what I've observed during COVID is that people were receiving money from the government for not really doing anything. And what do people want to do? People were still motivated. People were, were, were agonizing being stuck in their homes. So there is a an innate desire for people to have purpose. And I think the lack of purpose mm-hmm. is what really got under people's skin when they couldn't leave their homes, especially I mean, me, I've, I, I'm a hermit. I've, I spend most of my life in my apartment or my home. I'm okay with it. This is how I live. But yeah, I've, I got a lot of empathy for people who had to essentially live the way I live my life. I wouldn't want to put a lot of people through that. So, so that's observation number one. And then the second observation, and then I'll uh, give you the floor to react to either of them is over the course of history, there have been some gains and some positive changes in what is uh, socially acceptable. So for instance, cigarettes, you, you don't necessarily see them in ads anymore or on, on billboard ads at the very least. And when I go into a convenience store here in Canada, when they're, they're, the boxes are not on display, you have to open up a metal sheet to, to get them. Mm-hmm. So um, alcohol uh, here in Canada, very recently, um, a health report was released that people should only drink two drinks per week. And then a, a lot of people who had already had like three that very day got that news and said, what, how do you, um, I can't, I can't live like that. So, and then uh, the millennial generation uh, has also been reported to really not be as obsessed about drinking alcohol. I like to drink a little bit, but like, aside from the, the how much it costs, it, the, the, the social part of it has also started to uh, mitigate. So there have been some advancements in what people are addicted to. So it's not all like a compounding loss, right? We're not in despair here. There's There has been some improvements as well in the awareness of it. And for all of the the negativity of being becoming addicted to our screens, there are a lot of people putting content out saying, get off the TikTok, go outside. And go outside. the information is one of the best weapons to use to help uh, mitigate a lot of this. Yes, absolutely. I, I think um, like use the tools that we have. If we only had print, we would be using print. If we only had radio, we would be using radio. We live in a time of the internet. Let's use what we have to get the message out. Uh, so the what I had on, on deck is how we speak to clients specifically and how we characterize this. And I want to give my own stake in this too, just because I want people to know where I'm coming from, mm-hmm. is I I do struggle with addiction, but I struggle with what I would characterize as retail addictions, air quotes for the audio listeners, definitely air quotes in that. So for instance, a caffeine, uh, I have a habitual use of it, uh, video games, uh, online content. Um, I, you know, I wake up, it's hard not to be on my phone first thing in the morning. So uh, while there is a divide between the kind of substances that can almost irreparably damage someone, there's also a lot of these uh, habits and these substances and processes you described that are basically part of our society and economically are, are huge drivers of, of employment and even of uh, creativity because there's a, there's a lot of art associated with a lot of these. So there's a lot of culture associated with them. So it's not so easy to just stop doing something when it's tied to so much of our lived experience. So that's my stake on it. Um, I would like to, I'm going to ask you what's been your experience with it, what in your history motivated you to open that platform. So that's now on deck. But what I want to hear is that the descriptions and definitions that we use to describe people undergoing this, there's a range from cruel and inhuman 
to coddling and too soft. So when you're speaking to clients, how do you characterize the people dealing with their addiction? How do you handle the terminology? Yeah, such an important question. Thank you. We really work on destigmatizing language. So um, the the emphasis now in the recovery field is toward what we call person first language. So it's a person with a substance use disorder, a person with an alcohol use disorder, a person with a gaming disorder. And, and that does get wordy sometimes. In family recovery, we often um, say our loved one or our struggling loved one. There's a group that um, has, their language has narrowed it down even more to just your person, your person, whether it's your husband, you know, your spouse, your child, your sibling, whatever, your parent, you know, it's your person. The key is just that to keep the focus on the person because so often when someone is in chaotic use we get caught up in their behaviors and what they're doing or not doing Mm -hmm. a lot of times uh, we take it personally especially as parents we take it personally as a personal failure um so all the focus is is out in the periphery and we forget that's a person talking about that's a person who's going through this and uh believe me they did not choose this lifestyle when they were in chaotic use that is not a choice that they made did they choose the first time they picked something up yes they did not choose how their brain was going to react in that really depths of despair, really chaotic use, they're they're not happy there. I have worked with so many families and so many individuals um, that I can say that with confidence. Uh, They are not happy there. It's not a choice. So to bring it back to center to your question is really focusing on that person first language rather than, you know, the terms we grew up with, addict, junkie, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Like sometimes when I describe uh, what I do, I because as a producer, I, I do like a hundred different things. Right. So uh, sometimes just to be funny about it, I call myself a media junkie uh, just because it's there, there's such a, a consumption of it. And mm-hmm. is that it's all it's all within context. Right. Like I'm not talking to anybody who's who's dealing with anything serious. So there's there's compartmentalization to when a term is just used, you know, for the fun of it versus when a term is used and it's, it's describing something inaccurately because of the, the real darkness at hand. Mm -hmm. Um, A couple of other things that I wanted to say in response. One of them is there is not a one-to-one correlation between the substance. Uh, I'm speaking specifically about substances because I don't think processes really count in the point I'm about to make. There's not a one-to-one correlation in the substance somebody uses and the reaction that the persons get, even if the product is working as intended. A lot of these, these times, these products are embedded with other uh, illicit substances. Uh, there has been a lot of cases of see, even marijuana is loaded with other, sometimes with tobacco, but also with um, h- harder drugs as well. There is um, the opium addiction and, and and fentanyl and I'm not a huge expert on this so if there's anything that uh, you can add to to clarify there's been 
I forget exactly which one it is that it's used initially as a painkiller when people are undergoing surgery and are undergoing recovery. And then what happens is they just can't get off of it. So mm -hmm. do you by any chance recall which uh, substance I'm talking about there? Uh, well, fentanyl did start um, yeah, as okay. medical. Um, it, well, it still is. You know, it's used medically under under supervision, but it is highly addictive. I don't want to misquote this. I think the number is 100, but it's 100 times more um, powerful than morphine. So um, it's given in very low doses under very controlled circumstances. And that's why the illicit fentanyl out there in our society is so dangerous as you pointed out adulterated with other substances exactly and and then you also get into the malicious side of it too where you know these uh, substances are produced and distributed by uh, drug cartels mm -hmm. who people who are motivated to get people as addicted as possible so I, i'm tying all this together which is to say that you don't necessarily gets to fully impart uh, judgment onto someone for choosing one of these because th the amount of things that would not have been anticipated for are are beyond their grasp. Now, again, erring on the side of caution might, might have been the overall better choice in hindsight, but there are numerous factors that lead a person to that point in the first place. So we're not here to judge. We're just here to understand. Uh, and then the last thing that I wanted to say too, and what you're describing is that to really focus on the person is it's resonating with me because in my own experience, it has not always been easy to do that here in Toronto in, in downtown Toronto, like with a lot of downtown areas and a lot of towns, we do see homeless people. Um, some of them uh, regrettably have turned to violence and have begun accosting um, civilians who are just trying to enjoy themselves on on young street we we saw one person last time we were downtown on a date essentially shuffling as if he was uh, undergoing a a, a, vi a virus a, he, he looked like a zombie and again i'm being very careful about my my choice of words here but there was just no other way to describe this and the empathy was there but there was also a lot of fear and there was a lot of concern that not just in this individual's case what this person might start doing or what this person might pull out of his pockets, but also the scope of how many people are going to be affected by this. So it is ex extremely important to remember that these are all people, but it can be very difficult to do too because just the, the drastic difference between how I can conduct myself versus how this person is conducting himself is, uh, is eons away from one another. It's important to acknowledge that. That, that difference, right? Um, because until we're aware of something, we can't make conscious decisions to change it. So until we're aware of our thinking, um, we can't make a conscious decision to change the way we talk or the things we think about that person. We also want to respect the, the truth that you have genuine fear when you're walking down that street, mm -hmm. right? And we want to balance that with truly that person's not in their right mind, like chemical changes have taken place in their brain. And this is where the people in the harm reduction side of the recovery field talk about things like, um, uh, you know, Narcan distribution and like we should all be carrying Narcan um, and advocate they you know the harm reductionists advocate for safe use sites um so that the 
the people aren't on the streets, right? And they are medically supervised. And and again, this is high. This is a, a highly charged subject, so I won't go like really too deep into it. Um, I'm just sharing the harm reductionist viewpoint on that. Um, in that, that's that's their focus on helping to combat this problem. Because obviously, we have to come at it from as many different um, areas, angles, venues as we can. I, I appreciate how the, the, the care in which we're uh, being specific with our terms. Uh, this is a standard that uh, I, I hope to set even for my own sake uh, going forward with other conversations, some lighter than this one, but uh, all, all together. It, it's just how I visualize how I would want this to be. So. Um, with now that we're we're about thirty minutes in, and uh, I do want to start shifting us towards your your platform in specific and the work that you've had with your clients. So I think it's important as we get into this is to <laughs> talk about what motivated you to open this platform. What's been your history with it? That's been on deck for a little bit now. So would you care to tell us what is your involvement in this? Yes. Oh, this is literally a, a lifelong story. So my father struggled with alcohol um, from as far back as I can remember. <clears throat> when I first got into 12-step work, 12-step um, recovery, one of my first um, assignments doing step work was to write down, to journal all my memories as far back as I can remember. And I was so angry at the first thing that I remembered that I stopped. I didn't work on it for weeks until um, I finally told my sponsor, you know, I was angry because that was my first memory. And what it was, was I was a very young child, four, maybe five. My sister's two years younger than I am. In the backseat of a car, dark, like late, late, late at night. And my mom was in the bar trying to get my dad to come home. So... When I say lifelong story, it is truly a lifelong story. Mm -hmm. Now, the happy ending to that is that my dad found recovery um, many years later, but he did. Um, and then, so fast forward about 35 years, um, and uh, our daughters were in a really serious car accident, and the youngest was ejected from the, well, actually she was trapped, the car flipped over and she was trapped underneath it. So she had a traumatic brain injury. And um, actually they weren't even sure that, that she would live. So fast forward, you know, happy ending to that story is she did live. Less than happy part is that was, what, 20 years ago or so? Um, so we didn't know then what we know now about opiates, about the highly addictive nature, et cetera. So she ended up addicted to the prescription painkillers. Uh, and that just led to this whole roller coaster of different substances and whatnot that finally ended up in about a 10-year meth addiction. Um, and, and full disclosure to your audience is I have permission to share my daughter's story. So I'm not mm -hmm. speaking out of turn here. Um, so ended up in a full blown meth addiction that, that lasted almost 10 years, uh, which is 
in itself a miracle because uh, daily meth users don't generally live more than five to seven years is the life expectancy. Um, and she is just celebrating three years of um, abstinence, five years of what she calls in recovery. Okay. So it's very personal to me. That's a long way, Joseph, to say it's very personal to me because uh, because I've lived it, because I have loved people who struggle with substances and I see the damage that it does to the individuals, to the people that love them, to their relationships. And when I found family recovery and then I found family recovery training and I knew that I was making a shift from what I did before um, into this is just my, call it a second career, call it my second phase of life calling. I just, this is the platform. This is where I can serve, where I want to serve, where I know I can do the most good for humanity in general and families in specific. Well, you and your family have been through some pretty harrowing experiences, and I'm sorry to hear that. At the same time, I'm also um, happy to hear that considering how difficult and how just the possibilities of outcomes and what could have been the outcome, the outcomes that you did um, experience were, were ones to be thankful for. So I'm, I'm happy to hear that. Yeah. Uh, I, I would like to just briefly ask, because I, I, I love asking this question is, um, and by the way, I am super sorry if you said this already. I have like six things running on my computer, so sometimes I don't <laughs> absorb everything. But All good. Um, uh, what, was your, what was your career prior to it? Oh, um, I started out in accounting. So um, I was an accountant, um, CFO for a Fortune 500 company. Um, most recently, before I made the switch, I was a COO for a um, electrical contractor. Did, so it's definitely, definitely yeah, career switch. It's, it's a pivot. Yeah. Did Did any core skills or anything that you had learned in those fields uh, serve you in this, or did you feel like it's really it was really a fresh start, fresh start for you to um, build a new core skill set? Well, I think that's a yes and. I, I think that. Um, all experiences in life serve us and can build on one another. I don't think that God wastes any of our time or any of our pain. So even though, thank you for acknowledging, you know, what my family has gone through. And I just know that, that God doesn't waste any of that pain. So yes, there were some skills that I used, believe it or not, in those areas. Um, some computer skills, you know, some bookkeeping skills, definitely organizational skills, mm -hmm. um, people skills in general. Right. right? Um, and there were a lot of skills to build, a lot of things to learn about family recovery, about the science, about the research, um, about teaching family members new ways to engage. So, yes, Sam. Mm -hmm. It's a loose connection that I'm making in my mind, but I think it is still valid is accounting the you know the root word of account which extends into accountability and i think that there is a through line there of understanding what are a person's needs being able to advise and act as sort of like a guiding figure for 
a a resource that is uh, important in accounting. Obviously, we're talking about finances, but in family recovery, we're talking about people. So can you take us through... I can't imagine that there is such a thing as like an atypical client relationship. So if we can average this out, what would you say the client relationship uh, tends to look like? So my particular clients um, look a lot like me, which is not really unusual in the coaching space. It's just kind of energetically people connect that way. Um, uh, So what does that look like? You know, they're generally... um, a mom, like in that 40 to 60 range, they've got um, most often an adult child with a use disorder, sometimes a spouse, sometimes both. Um, and they're generally people, uh, people of faith. Uh, and that doesn't mean I don't work with other people. I've had, I've had clients who were of the same faith as me, um, Jewish. Um, faith, Catholic faith. Um, I had a client who was an atheist. We work very well together. But typically, if we're going to use that term air quoted or loosely, yeah, typically it's a mom in that age range. That's a person of faith. Early on in a in our in, in a coach's platform, not everything runs smoothly. So there have been there can be mistakes. There can be reevaluations of how to uh, provide your service. Um, better so do you recall any early um, miscalculations or anything that you felt needed to be uh, improved upon earlier on in your work um um yeah i think so yeah i think that there's always room for improvement um to do things differently um i try to be very aware of the just very personal nature of this work as it is and kind of have a guiding set of parameters. So one really important thing that that I do that's important to me mm-hmm. is when I close out with a family, there's a, you know, I ask them for the gift of feedback, right? And part of that survey is what worked well for you, what didn't work so well for you, um, what would you like to see different? Those, I mean, there's a few other questions. There's like six questions on there, but those three, super important to me. Of course, I ask for testimonial, yes. Um, But those those three, like what worked really well, what didn't work so well, what do you wish we had done? Super important. And I've made adjustments to one-on-one coaching, to the groups, to the educational. workshop that I do. I've made adjustments to all of those based on feedback. I expect that a lot of the people who come seeking your help have uh, have already passed a threshold where the person uh, in need of help has already gone beyond uh, conventional aid. Uh, like an intervention isn't going to help at this point. But I, what I would be interested in hearing is if I had you First of all, if that's true. And then second, have you had any clients where they've come to you in a more proactive state because they've sensed patterns? Maybe they've seen this happen in another family member and think, uh, I think my, uh, my my partner or my child is starting to go down this path. Have you ever had the opportunity to deal in, in a more proactive sense? I personally have not. I think mainly because of my 
my typical client that looks like me that has an adult child with an issue. So we've spent, and this is true for a lot, probably most families, um, is kind of the, the default coping mechanism is denial. So a big thing that we work on with, that I work on with families when they're new is how to get out of that denial. I do know there are coaches out there who work with a younger demographic that they might get some of that more proactive nature of a client. But I personally, um, I, I get them when it's they're deep in chaos. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one of the clients that you had mentioned was uh, an atheist. And that's one of the one something I was uh, curious to know about is because because not everyone is a believer in God. Um, I think helping instill hope in someone who doesn't have a higher power to turn to can be a little bit more difficult. So um, what can you share with your experience working with, with the atheist and was there, I and mean, what, like, what did you have to do differently because you didn't necessarily have uh, God as a resource to aid you in this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great question. So um, I, I asked just really um, direct open questions and one that works really well for that situation was, um, okay, th- you know, think back to a time when you had a really difficult, you were in the midst of a really difficult situation. And what was your source of strength then through that? So then what I do is whatever they say, I just build on that through our relationship. So most people believe in something right what no matter what they call right you know the universe my higher self you know whatever it is whatever it is and if if it's you know if they say to me it's my higher self then that's what we talk about okay let's so instead of talking about praying we talk about speaking to our higher self right instead of journaling to or about God, we journal to, or that person journals to or about their higher self. Everybody has something that when the chips are down, that is their source of strength. So the key when you're working with someone who is of a different faith or of no particular organized faith, the key is finding out what that something is. And that question that I asked um, helps identify that. And then you know, we make an agreement that, um, you know, we're, we'll filter our questions, our activities through that source. I, I agree with what you're saying about everyone. Yeah, I mean, aside from probably some of the most steadfast uh, atheists uh, to the point where they're probably called something else anyways, everyone has some form of belief. And it reminds me of something my dad used to tell me when I was younger, when I was questioning my relationship with uh, God quite a bit. And he said, you know, you might have a, a hard time believing in God now, but say you go mountain climbing and it doesn't go well and then you're you're trapped. You're going to believe in God a heck of a lot more than, than you might be right now. So I, I think as... I just think the I know we're getting off on a tangent here, but we've been due for a tangent for a while now. It's just I think the idea that not believing in any kind of spiritual power is the equivalent of uh, 
removing several rings from the inside of a tree. It's part of our growth. It's part of our development. And it is a fundamental building block to the human experience. So to not have that is really just a matter of not having found the particular logic or uh, idealism that allows that mind to have that configuration or to have that understanding. Uh, I don't actually have a question for that, but I would be curious to hear if any reactions on your end have manifested. Again, my, my person who was a you know self-proclaimed atheist, um, initially, you know, statement was, well, I, I just, I don't believe there's anything out there bigger than, than myself. But then when we start chunking down with those really direct questions and then we get to that one of think back to a time when you were in a really difficult situation and you didn't know what you were going to do where did you find the strength then that's what helps people really identify that there really is something mm-hmm. something bigger than us whether we want to call it god or even if we want to even if we don't want to stay bigger than us, there's something there where, where we find our strength. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, God is, is, is important to me. My faith is a key component of who I am, everything that I do. But we worked together just fine. She, I have one of my best testimonials from her. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as long as people are open, able to be open and honest, honest with themselves, then there is hope. There's hope for their, there's hope for their family's recovery. There's hope for healing their relationship with their loved one. And and that's something that I, I wanted to make sure I asked before we start to kind of scale out of uh, individual clients and, and the individual coaching. But I imagine that you've met with families that were truly in despair mm-hmm. to the point where they felt like, like all is lost with our loved ones. So how do you restore hope in in that? Okay. I'm probably going to give you two answers here, if that's okay. okay Um, Because with my families of faith, we talk two prongs. We talk about family recovery and all the things I already mentioned, you know, that we do. And we talk about um, God and the impact of their faith. And, and, um, a lot of times people have turned their back on their faith because they think, how could God let this happen? And so we talk about restoring, restoring that faith, right? When I did true purpose work, I found um, that my uh, part of my purpose is to help people connect to God's unconditional love. That's a lot of work with, you know, with our people of faith. With our people, you know, with my people who, um, you know, don't necessarily uh, have that faith component, we stick with all those things I told you at the beginning, you know, the education, the science, the information, the mindfulness, uh, you know, everybody can practice mindfulness. You know, you don't have to have any religious or spiritual belief to, you know, practice conscious breathing practice staying in the moment, you know, that sort of stuff. And then the communication strategies. So, you know, we restore hope in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. Um, The key is, the key is there's always hope. As long as there's life, 
there's hope. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, among all of those factors, I think it's also worth pointing out too that having worked with uh, other families so far, being able to draw from experience allows a, a rational approach to a, a new situation as well. Say, I've, I don't know how many people you worked with, but the more you work with, I think the more easy it is to rationalize that and instill that hope in others. Uh, you know, I, would I have chosen what our family experienced with our daughter? Absolutely not. I would not have chosen that. It was painful for all of us mm-hmm. in all the ways, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually painful. Was there a purpose for it? Absolutely. Because my relationship with God deepened, right? Of course, I had that that gut of, oh, dear God, how can you let this happen? Mm-hmm. Um so my relationship with God deepened. Eventually, my our daughters did. I have this beautiful platform now to help people because I never would have chosen all the um, time and dollars I invested in the training that I did had that not happened. Um, she has this beautiful platform now to speak to people who are like, really, really down, like the people you described when you went on your walk, right? That was her. So she she has that connection with those people and she can really serve them and minister to them and help them. So long answer, would I have chosen it? No. Uh, was there a purpose for it? Most absolutely. I, I want to uh, relate to that in, in my own way, just because this is very fresh in my mind, but um, my my girlfriend lost her dad uh, to stomach cancer about a month and a half ago at this point. Mm-hmm. And we decided we were going to move out of the apartment and go live with her mom because we didn't want her to be alone. And mm-hmm. as a side point, Toronto is also really expensive. So you know, there, was, there was a silver lining to it. There was an opportunity to it, uh, a fresh start. And there is this grievance but there is also this gratitude to god that he's he's giving us a burden that he knows we can handle he's not making us suffer because i don't know we deserve it or we're being punished it's there is just this amount of light and darkness in the world and the world just doesn't exist without darkness and it does fall to us as humans to uh, take on that darkness and be able to uh, withstand that burden so it's fascinating to hear that the the issues that you had faced on a, on that very personal level have are now serving you as such an extraordinary resource to empathize with the people you're working with, to know what they're what they're going through, to have gone through it yourself, and to serve as this constant reminder of yes, I'm here, I'm in the right place. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, this thought just came into my head, so I hope it's okay if I share it. Um, there's um. Uh, you know, the, the story of Job and, you know, uh, he, he was like the richest man and he lost everything. Um, like all his belongings and his children and his wife and his three besties just tell him curse God and die. Right. And none of that happened because Job did anything wrong or bad. All that happened so that God could show up and say, and here, Job, let me restore all that many times over. 
and that's what I, I mean, not that I think I'm as great a person, person of faith as Joe, but I'm just tying that to, you know, uh, God can use all those, all those situations. Just like, you know, I, I heard you say in your personal situation, that's what brought that to my mind. So things are difficult. Sometimes life is hard. Right. But much like you said, you know, we wouldn't know light if there wasn't dark. Exactly. We wouldn't know that. We wouldn't know joy if there wasn't sadness. Life is a mixed bag. Exactly. And exactly. We, we get to embrace it all. We are closing in on the hour mark. Uh, I'm probably I, I anticipate I'm going to keep it for a little longer just because of the 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 conversation that we're having right now. But we are kind of moving into the uh, the wrap up phase of this. Um, in terms of your your your, your website and your web, web presence, I'm always interested in hearing what are the challenges that you're facing right now. If you're happy with like how you rank on Google, if you're happy with your social media presence, what do you feel like you you need to um, work on to help get your message out there? Um, whew, such a good question. I feel like social media is a moving target. Um, it seems like it's constantly uh, changing. Um, so honestly, I um, I try to share, um, provide resources, provide information. Of course, I'm always looking to to learn what I need to learn, and I'm balancing that with leaving the results to to God. Would I like to you know see more engagement and et cetera on social media? Of course, because. You know, we know the algorithm tells us, that, you know, more engagement, the more, the more our stuff shows up to other people. So it's a, it's about, you know, balancing act. I, you know, I would love to be, uh, what's the Google equivalent of above the fold? I'd love to be rank up there. <laughs> I don't know what uh, above the fold uh, means in particular. Oh, I'm showing a... my age, huh? Um, back in the newspaper days, like, you know how uh, your paper okay. was like this? Yeah. And so when you open it up, the stuff above the fold was like the main headlines. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I assure you, I've seen newspapers. <laughs> <laughs> I so one one side to this too is that the 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 part of us that uh, becomes a habitual user of something. I mean, it's not all used in a negative way, right? Like there's people who become addicted to exercise or reading books or listening to great content. Mm -hmm. And so the these can be um, uh, tendencies that manifest in positive ways. We don't want to call that like, I don't want to say like I'm, I'm addicted to things that are good because the connotation is inherently negative. So could you add anything to that? Could you describe what perhaps the behavior patterns are at work here? that are leading to good positive behavior that we can reinforce? Yes, I really, um, thank you for that awareness on your part because <clears throat> words are very important to me. Um, and I'm one of the loud voices out there about, you know, changing our destigmatizing language. Mm -hmm. uh, and part of that is I don't want to co-opt the word addiction into positive activities. Right. reading, exercise, um, you know, listening to good content. Um, so, um, I don't know. I might be, I might be more inclined, um, to the, uh, 
word habit or consistency, mm-hmm. uh, intentional activities, uh, you know, intentional exercise schedule, intentional podcast listening, that, right. that sort of stuff. I don't want to lose the power, I'm going to say, of the word addiction. Um, and if we go all the way back to the beginning of this podcast, when we looked at some of those definitions, um, uh, part one of the key components was problematic. Problematic use that makes it unable to, makes a person unable to fulfill their um, responsibilities, right? So if we keep that distinction and let the addiction be problematic and let these positive things be intentional Mm -hmm. or uh, continuous or planned, those those sorts of words I think will serve us better. And I, I, for one, I think a habitual can go in either direction, but there is a lot of positive information out there that encourages good habitual development, mm-hmm. outlining how long it takes for something to become a habit. Um, and, right. and and the key is muscle memory. It's something that becomes dif- is difficult to start with. It goes both ways. It becomes easier mm-hmm. and becomes more habitual as time goes on. And the 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 difficulty of it up front is an indicator that is probably something good for you like exercise or like you know being able to sit down and get away from a screen for a few hours meditation all of that so um there was one other uh point that i wanted to make uh before we close out and then i'll i'll let you have a response to it and then i'll also um uh, offer you the floor in case there's any other floating points or observations or reactions you wanted to make sure that you stated and so I do have my, my, my comedy background. Um, I do have a TikTok where I, I make sketch comedy videos. And I did make a video about a person who's trying to uh, quit smoking. His friend comes in and says, I thought you said you were quitting. I'm like, yeah, I did, I did say that. <sighs> takes, a, takes a drag of the cigarette. So put it out. Stop, take, stop smoking the cigarette. I'm like, okay, okay, I'll stop. <sighs> takes another. And it's just like, so because you mentioned, uh, I think it's from midway through this episode, is that denial is an issue. And what I found was interesting in like hanging out with with smokers, of which I, I casually smoke a cigarette once in a while, is the acknowledgement of it. It reinforces it in its own way where it's like, oh, yeah, man, I, I got to stop doing this. <sighs> this is going to be the last one. <sighs> and there and there's something about the um, the positive feedback of saying like telling my friend, like, I am going to quit. Oh, congratulations. And then what do I do? I go outside and have a cigarette. So. My that that's what I what I'm thinking here is that acknowledging it leads to its own unique set of problems. And I'm curious if acknowledging it, considering that the um, substances that the people you've helped are more extreme than the retail ones I'm describing, uh, how has acknowledgement perhaps not worked as intended? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, what I really want to say is I think um, a really important thing that I teach families about and, and not just me, other people in the family recovery air, um, field, um, is the stages of change. Um, if anybody's heard of that, it's um, uh, Prochaska and DiClemente. It's from the 70s, actually. But it's also trans-theoretical model. Some of your more clinical people might understand that term. But anyway, 
it talks about the stages that we all have to go through when we want to change something. Okay. Um, and there's this pre-contemplation stage, which that's the denial. Yeah, who me? I don't have a problem. The contemplation stage is, um, well, yeah, maybe I do, maybe I don't. And that's that would be like what you're describing. Yeah, I'm going to quit. Yeah. Right? Um, but, but guess what? It's not pre-contemplation. It's not denial. Right. So there is a, there, there is a place, there is a place for that. There's a preparation phase where people um, start looking at the pros and cons of changing um, and a planning stage where they plan out what are they going to do? What changes are they going to make um, to replace this habit? And the action is the actual, that's the taking the steps and making the change. Then there's the maintenance, like the day-to-day grind, staying with that. So that's a long answer to give you to, um, there is like someone saying, I I want to quit or I need to quit or I'm going to quit. Um, We call that change language. And that's um, actually, uh, that's a positive sign. Mm -hmm. They might not be ready but um, at least they're thinking about it. Right, right. Acknowledging that for whatever are the positives that the person is reaping, which are uh, almost invariably short-term, that the negative consequences may add up and it's it's a step forward. So I I appreciate that answer. Yeah. Um, so with that, we're going to wrap this this up. But Laurie, as okay. I said, if you have anything, uh, lingering thoughts or reactions or opinions or even a question you wanted to toss me, anything along those lines, feel free. And then if you're all good, let the audience know where they might be able to find you online. Oh, okay. Awesome. Thank you so much. Well, um, before I do that, I just want to say thank you, Joseph, for, uh, for having me. Um, and thank you to your audience for listening in. Um, and of course, if I can support anyone in any way, um, I hope that they will reach out. You can find my website at buildingbridgestorecovery.org, O-R-G. And um, then uh, Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash buildingbridgestorecovery, uh, Instagram at family recovery coach Lori, and um, LinkedIn also building bridges to recovery. Yep. So whatever I can do, um, it is my literally, I don't say this lightly, my calling, my purpose in life to, to support families in their recovery and uh, healing their relationships with their loved ones. Excellent. Well, as I, as I said at the beginning of the episode and probably like two or three times throughout the episode to do my part to help get this message out is what, I feel like is my calling, at least for now. And my, my Kaizen is sort of leaning me towards becoming a writer, but that's down the line. But to on a day like today to do this is a uh, honor and a privilege. So for everyone who is listening, um, supporting it in your own way, thank you. Uh, Lori, thank you for sharing your expertise with us as well. And with that, we're, gonna, we're all going to move on with our day. So this has been the Impactful Coaching Podcast. It is our endeavor to aid you in your endeavor to aid others because what we want more than anything is for you to be impactful while you're at it.